Hello, everyone. We originally recorded this episode with Professor Miriam Heller-Stern on December 9th, 2021, as part of our Learning About Learning webinar series. We're delighted to release it now as an episode of our podcast. Miriam is an historian, a teacher educator, and an educational leader at HUCJIR, and a champion of creativity in Jewish education. In this episode, we spoke about a study of a Jewishly-oriented theater company that she had recently completed and that's now been published as a chapter titled The Past as Portal to the Future in an edited volume called Portraits of Adult Jewish Learning. Miriam spoke with me about how the members of the theater company worked together, how they dove into the study of ancient Jewish history, but also how they casually and seamlessly moved back and forth between ancient texts and contemporary questions. She emphasized the active, constructive nature of the learning process that they undertook as they worked not just to learn, but to produce a high-quality piece of art. This conversation is particularly relevant to Jewish educators and Jewish professionals, especially because of the focus not on individual meaning-making, but rather on how a group functions together, how the group engages in a shared project, how it undertakes serious learning in order to develop an artistic product that they can then share with the world. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Miriam as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Hello, and welcome to the Jack, Joseph, and Morton Mandel Center for Studies in Jewish Education at Brandeis University. My name is John Levison. I'm the director of the Mandel Center, and I'm delighted to bring you another installment in our podcast, Learning About Learning. At the Mandel Center, we are committed to advancing the field of Jewish educational scholarship, especially scholarship on teaching and learning, in order to make a deep and lasting difference on the lives of learners and the vibrancy of the Jewish community. That's our mission. We know that there's great scholarship being done in the field of Jewish education, but it's not always accessible. And even when it is, it's not always obvious why people in the field of Jewish education should care about it. That's what this podcast is about, making really interesting scholarship on Jewish education accessible and talking with scholars about why it matters. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy learning about learning as much as I do. Let's get started. Our guest today is our friend and colleague, Miriam Heller-Stern. Miriam is the National Director of the School of Education at HUCJIR, where she also serves as the Vice Provost for Educational Strategy. Miriam earned her PhD from Stanford, where she focused on the history of Jewish education. She is an alumna of the Western Graduate Fellowship Program. She serves on the boards of several Jewish educational organizations. When she was at AJU before HUC, she created the Dream Lab. And now at HUC, she's created something called Beta Yotzer, the Creativity Brain Trust. So creativity and the creative process and the relevance of creativity and the creative process for Jewish education has been at the center of her work for the last several years. Miriam, welcome. It is good to see you. Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, back in a webinar at virtually my alma mater. And at your alma mater, right? Actually, I forgot to mention uh, class of 98. Is that right? Indeed. Class of 98 at Brandeis. So we're talking today about your recently completed article. You worked on this with our colleague Tobin Belzer about how a Jewish theater company uses the study of Jewish history to deepen their creative work. The name of the theater company is Theodibic, and the show that they were working on 
when you were studying them, studying the process was called Exagogue, which is a show based on what I understand to be the first known Jewish play from Alexandria in the second century BCE, which itself is fascinating. And the article that you and Tobin wrote about their work is going to be included in a volume about adult Jewish learning that's forthcoming from the Mandel Center, from our project that's called Portraits, uh, Portraits of Adult Jewish Learning. So Miriam, tell us how you came to do this work, this research, and why you thought it was worth studying the learning process of the folks in the theater company as they did their work. So this research sits at the nexus of my research interests. As a historian and as someone who's interested in how people learn and think about history, as well as my interest in creativity, and then what all of that does in the alchemy with a learning process. I live in Los Angeles, which is a sort of a creative environment that has definitely gotten in my head over the 18 years since I've been here working as a scholar. And about almost 10 years ago, I was invited to a roundtable conversation of artists and educators and Jewish culture makers in Los Angeles, where I met, or I should say, re-met Aaron Henney, the artistic director and founder of Theater Dybbuk. That turns out I didn't recognize him in the moment, but we had known each other since we were quite small, having grown up in the same small town of Bayonne, New Jersey. And we got to collaborating around teaching through the arts, teaching creativity, and teaching Jewish creativity when I was at American Jewish University. I became really interested in how he does his work because the Theater Dybbuk Theater Company spends anywhere from six to 18 months developing their projects through shared study. It's a very democratized approach to researching and understanding the conceptual frameworks or point of departure that they are creating from. And I thought it was fascinating to see how a group of creatives takes a topic, makes it their own, and then interprets it for the stage and engages communities in learning and thinking and provocative ideas. Yeah. So there's a very long conversation that I would love to have maybe another time about like what happens when they produce the the show and that at the, sort of at the end of the process and be involved. But you were focused on this process of developing the show. And because you are who you are, you saw that as a process of learning, right? So you were looking at these folks and saying they are undergoing a learning process that feeds this, this creative work. So help us understand what the actual research looks like. Originally, you were a historian. That was how you first trained. But over the years, you've developed other methodologies. So how do you actually do this kind of work? What kinds of data do you have available to understand what was happening for these folks along the way? So I partnered with Tobin Belzer, a colleague of ours who is a sociologist, a data storyteller, and she came to this with a pretty rich practice in Jewish arts and culture evaluation and research. And we engaged in ethnography. We observed the process. So we, we started the process by joining their very first script development meeting in Aaron and his wife Julie's apartment in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, which is where a lot of artists live. And we sat around on couches and went through these packets of material that Aaron had created for the group. And everyone kind of jumped in and tried to make sense of it. And, you know, from really serious engagement around, you know, the history of Greek theater to jokes about Monty Python and religious school, both Christian and Jewish, we emerged with some understanding of, so what did it mean for a Hellenized Jew 
to try to understand the Exodus story way back in the day. And then what does that mean for us? So we watched and observed this process of sense making over a series of four or five months in script development meetings. We then followed up with in-depth interviews with members of the company, including the actors, the dramaturg, music composer, as well as Aaron himself, reflecting on what the experience was like, what the learning was like, what the cultural production meant to them, and what this process of sense-making and interpretation looks like for a group of artists, engaging with history, but also really thinking about what it means to them in the present. Yeah. So, and there's some lovely moments, you know, one of the wonderful things about doing ethnographic work is that then you can show these moments to the reader of this paper, of this chapter. So you sort of take us inside of Aaron Henny's living room with the, uh, you know, the glasses of white wine. And I think they were Trader Joe's snacks. Oh, yeah. um, and we get a sense of what that was like, as well as some of the data from those interviews. So let's turn now to what you learned from doing this work from all this data. When you kind of pull back the lens, what's the big story here? So I think there are a few different stories here. I mean, one is about how people learn history and research history. And of course, for those of us who are historian purists, it might be a little bit jarring to learn that people like to take history into their own hands. They like to research, they like to watch movies, they like to Google, they like to read books, and they consult with scholars. And then they put it all together and try to make sense of it in their own lives. And that to me, actually, as a historian, I found even some of the reinterpretation, creative interpretation to be refreshing because it means that history was relevant to them. It wasn't just about trying to master, you know, an understanding that a scholar had written. They were using history as a point of departure to ask meaningful questions about existential and universal issues today, which speaks to the relevance of history and historical thinking. And it also speaks to what adult learners are seeking. That this was a group of people who want to do deep and sophisticated work in their art making, in their creative practice, and being part of a Jewish project was something that was very exciting to them. So not everyone who's part of Theodor Dybbuk identifies as Jewish. Some we might call Jewish adjacent, if you mm -hmm. will, but they love the intellectual work. They loved the creative engagement and the way that the process itself pushes them to be better artists, to create something that's going to be powerful for an audience. So let me ask you more about that, Miriam. So from the perspective of academic historians, we sometimes hear a kind of casual distinction between sometimes it's called history and memory, academic history, critical history, and something that feels like I'm using history for my own purposes. I'm, or I'm using, it, maybe it's not history, I'm using some memories of the past for my own purposes, for my own identity, for personalization. But it sounds like it was more complicated because it sounds like what you saw was more of a process of kind of returning to historical evidence. It's true, not merely in order to tell a historical narrative, right? It doesn't sound like they were mostly concerned with getting the story right, but they were also not unconcerned about what actually happened in history and what the historical evidence had to show. Is that is that a fair characterization? Yeah, and I think it's with a purpose that's really interesting to study. The artistic director, Aaron Honey, as we mentioned, talks about using history as a point of departure or even as a mirror that allows us to reflect upon questions that are really difficult to face in the present. So for example, the Exegog play dove into ethical questions around belonging, 
power, immigration policy. And these are some big questions that become, you know, rife with political implications that sometimes we have trouble talking about in the present. The historical point of departure becomes a kind of metaphor or a language to talk about things that are hard to talk about in the present. So, for example, the play uses a lot of different prisms on the Moses character to explore what are the different sides of leadership? What are the responsibilities of a leader? What are the moral obligations of a leader to himself, to his community, to his people, to his enemies, to his neighbors? What does it mean to try to start a nation? What does that mean for one's own family? And how does one process one's own sense of self? So the Moses character, for example, became a way of looking at some of the depth and complexity around leadership, identity, belonging, and trauma. So interesting. And as you write about the company leader, Aaron Henney, having, I forget, like maybe a hundred pages of documents, that point of departure is not just a point, but it's actually like a whole volume of material that they were working through, historical material that they were working through. So clearly the presence of the leader is enormously important, but it's also a kind of really, well, I think you use the word democratized or decentralized learning process. So the leader is present and kind of gets things moving, but he didn't have, you know, if we can contrast it to maybe a, a more typical formal educational setting, he didn't have predetermined learning objectives that he was trying to accomplish. So this is a group of learners, but there's a kind of a fuzzy process. So I'm curious how you think about the similarities and differences between this learning environment, right, which maybe nobody ever thought about as a learning environment until you came along, you and Tobin came along and said, hey, there's a really interesting learning environment happening here. So what are the similarities and differences between this learning environment and other kinds of learning environments? So I think in education, we often talk about a distinction or even a binary between the sage on the stage and the guide on the side. And in this case, the director role, and I think Aaron's particular director role, and we see this in both how he reflected upon his role in the creation of this play and also how members of the company talked about working with him. You know, as a fellow follower and consumer of John Dewey, I always love <laughs> collapsing a binary and a dichotomy and proving it to be false. So this role of the director who really wants to create a space for collective process for the participants who, I mean, you know, we might call them learners, but they're really creators, right? They are learning, but they're also growing and they're pushing and they're challenging and they're thinking and they're laughing. But at the end of the day, they bring their own voice to it, but the director does have to make a decision as to how they are going to create a high quality production. And so I think like when you ask what's kind of the big story or takeaway about this, this was a real aha moment that Tobin and I had when we were processing the data with Diane Tickton-Schuster, the editor of the Portraits of Adult Jewish Learning Project. We realized this is a kind of adult project-based learning. Mm. So whereas a lot of adult Jewish learning tends to happen in what we call learning communities, right? Adult learners tend to be seekers. They're trying to make sense of things that are relevant to them. And in that case, often the teacher will be kind of a facilitator okay. of that learning journey for them. And they are learning whether together or in a community. In this case, the theater company becomes a learning company. 
So you're distinguishing between community and company. And what's what's that distinction for you? So the learning community is in it to create community around this experience of learning together. And so that might create bonds over shared ideas, shared aspirations, shared values. They might even bond over their difference and the complexity in what they see differently in the world. But they're searching for personal meaning and maybe wanting to be part of something bigger than themselves. A learning company takes it to the next level, which is that they're ultimately responsible for creating something with that learning that they are participating in. So they're not just participants, but they're there to create something new of high quality, right? That they have to be accountable for and feel great about as a contribution to society, to their audience. And that means that it's not just about them, but it's actually about a collective project of, in this case, provoking people to think differently about issues of trauma and belonging, leadership and responsibility, how we relate to history, and so on. And so the director then has this very unique position of not lecturing and being the expert as the sage on the stage, but also not being as light touch as the guide on the side, but channeling the group to come up with something that is going to be a high quality theatrical production and also engage the audience in important, heady and emotional work. Yeah. So we sometimes talk about in education, we sometimes talk about the co-creation of ideas or the co-creation of meaning, whether that's with a classroom community or in a Haruta setting. And what you're noticing that the key move here is that there was co-creation that was then production for others. And maybe that doesn't happen as much in some other settings, but this is this is really a place where you see that happening with all of the all of the implications about accountability, right? As soon as you're saying I'm doing something for others, I'm creating a product for others, well, I want them to like it. I want them to think it was excellent. I want this to be the best it can possibly be. I'm curious to learn more about what we're calling the learners, um, right? The others in this company. I know that there are actors and dramaturgs and lighting and setting, all people having different roles, and they come from diverse backgrounds. So what do you see was particularly important about these learners? I think that the diverse perspectives that they bring from their life experience, from their creative dispositions, right? These are people who have dedicated their lives to taking on perspectives other than their own. And so creatives have a unique ability to go outside of their own ideas, inhabit them, and then present them in a new way to other people, which awakens a different kind of learning in a collective space than simply an individual trying to make sense for themselves and then maybe hearing from others. I think there's also, um, Aaron talks about learners having a sense of ownership. But at the same time, not feeling overly engaged in sort of holding fast to that own perspective. And so at the end of the day, there's also an opening of the mind of being able to let go a little bit and hear from others. And again, go along with the collective to create something that's going to be interesting and provocative. I just want to mention one other thing about the learning company, which is that that notion of the learning company is one that I learned about from David Allen's work on the professional learning of teachers and what teachers can learn from theater companies in their own professional learning. And he points to the importance of this contributing something authentic to the collective as being an empowering 
method of professional learning for teachers. And so here I apply it to a group of creatives and I think it has important implications for how adult learners in general might learn on two levels, both for the personal, but also toward the collective creation of something new and interesting and provocative for Judaism and Jewish life. So just to tease out something that I'm pretty sure I heard you saying, but I just want to check your focus on creatives, right? That's the term. You see these folks as being particularly expert or particularly well-practiced in either it's a, a set of techniques or sometimes a disposition. They're not radically different than any of us. Any of us have this capacity. And in some ways, just by training our lens in this kind of specialized location, we may learn some things that are actually relevant for any of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's also an invitation to think about text beyond itself, right? So sometimes there are models of adult learning that ask us to just get really good at reading text, right, in black and white. These creatives all interpret text in different languages through gesture, through mm -hmm. song, right, through lyrics, through movement, through creation. And so these different languages also lend themselves to new kinds of interpretation and ways of understanding history. And so to go back to that point of departure, right, it gets reinterpreted in ways that go beyond the scholar. So one of our colleagues has asked, is wondering about the potential for this kind of creative work in the development of leaders in particular, and wants to know, can you imagine using what she calls educative theater as professional development for leaders? What would that look like? So uh, we actually don't have to imagine it because okay. Theater Dipic actually does it as a okay. whole body of practice outside of the theater production, nice. although certainly it's related. But there's a metaphor in the play of ev everybody gets to play Moses. There are seven different Moseses in the play. It's not that there's simply one lead who is Moses. And the mo whoever's playing the Moses character puts on the Moses mask and gets to be Moses in that moment in the character's development as a human, as a leader, and in the character's struggle. And the actors talked about how meaningful it was to try to relate to their particular Moses in the play. And I think that that process of inhabiting a leader in different moments of conflict, struggle, mm. development could be a really interesting tool for anyone who even doesn't have acting ability in the technical sense to step into those shoes and think differently. So what was a surprise for you as you were doing this work? What did you discover that you really didn't expect to see? I think that what for me, I was very open to the surprises. So I don't know that I would call them surprises, but the work helped me see that a lot of the conventional ways that I was taught to think about Jewish learning maybe should be reconsidered, right? Mm -hmm. So the notion that Jewish learning really is sort of held by the expert, here mm -hmm. we saw this really refreshing approach to kind of taking learning by the horns and turning it into something else. I think the diversity of the cohort was fascinating and we saw perspective taking that was really rich because it wasn't and it isn't an exclusively Jewish space. It is a Jewish space that is very attractive to anyone who wants to learn and be part of what's happening there. And so that lends itself to a lot of rich perspective taking. And so just one more question before we wrap up. Why does this matter? Why do you think, well, what do you think rather that the case of Theodore Dubik, the case of the learning of this theater company, what can we learn from this case for other kinds of Jewish educational settings? 
So I think, you know, I'll take my own historical sociological lens. When we look back at the last 30 years of Jewish education, there's been a hyper customization and a hyper focus on the learner as an individual seeker, Mm -hmm. meeting the needs of that learner and helping that learner find relevance. And I think that this creative process points to the possibility of a reemergence of a collective project of Jewish learning where the individual is very animated and at the same time it is toward the production of something new and creative that is going to contribute to the community to society and to creative practice overall i think that the sort of the resurgence of collective work that takes the diversity and turns it into something new is really promising and exciting yeah and you know as you're speaking just what you were saying before about the diversity of those learners. So they're each bringing something of themselves that's different. They are each inevitably on their own particular learning trajectory. But the framing here is not about personal meaning making. The framing is about what are we going to do together that we're going to be proud about, that we're going to feel like we all had a role in, and that's new and that's different and that's that's actually, you know, it's a project that we've developed together and we can share with the world. Miriam, thank you very, very much. It's great to talk with you about your work. I want to thank everyone for joining us. I encourage everyone to check out the Mandel Center events page to learn about other upcoming events, do all the following and linking kinds of things that we hope you'll do. And thank you all for joining us. Be well.